Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. Washington, D.C., the United States of America, the third indictment for a former president. Incredible that I'm even saying that. This one's quite serious. The charges are attempting to overthrow an election. And there has been a wild 24 hours that's been unfolding. This hour, we're going to talk about what happened in that courtroom. We have Jackson Prosco, who is the Washington Bureau Chief for Global News, and also his interview with one of the officers who defended the Capitol in Washington that day. Uh, right now, though, there's so many other things that are happening news-wise. There is a taunt, a reaction from the court. Talk about history. Reggie Cicchini joining us live, Global News Washington correspondent. Reggie, how are you? Good afternoon. Happy Saturday. All right. It is a happy Saturday. We know now that um, federal judges work in the United States of America. Wow. What a moment. You know, I woke up this morning again, and very few headlines these days can make you step back and read them again and make sure you got the right day. And it's for real. It's the Department of Justice seeks protective order. And they're seeking it against a former president of the United States. We had a posting on truth by the president. We had a taking back. And now we have legal action here, Reggie. Yeah. And, and look, um, it's not surprising. It's unsurprising, at least mm-hmm. to most people, that the Department of Justice would be attempting to try and get in front of what the former president um, is saying and how the words that the former president says uh, maybe, you know, interpreted elsewhere. And, and look, again, this is not the first time that the former president's words may have found himself in trouble. Uh, there was a posting from Donald Trump. It was on Truth Social. And it said, if you're coming for me, I'm coming for you. Reggie, yeah. what was that posting here? And yeah. it's just uh, started a firestorm. It, it did. And look, as I was trying to say before, uh, before technology caught up with us, the former president's <laughs> words in the past uh, have caught up with him. And that's the reason that we're finding this court case moving forward. That is the reason that we see the indictment against him is because words that were used uh, were used in an inappropriate way and potentially have consequences. And here now you have the former president taking to his own social media account to say, if you come after me, I will come after you. And look, The campaign came out to say, uh, you know, this is simply just political speech. This is us going after the super PACs. This is us going after, quote unquote, rhinos. But the Justice Department and the special counsel's team, they see this as a potential threat. They see this as a potential bit of of witness intimidation. Uh, And so they're now seeking to ensure that the former president, who during his indictment, who during his arraignment, rather, uh, swore, promised, that there would be nothing that's done that that breaks the law. That was a condition of his release. Mm-hmm. And now they there are fears amongst the Justice Department that the former president's words on Truth Social are going to get in the way of, of witness 
testimony are going to 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 rattle the nerves of witnesses that may come forward. And they are now looking to seek, um, you know, what Trump's lawyers can show him to mm-hmm. ensure or at least kind of to, to, they're trying to see if they can slow down or pause what Trump's lawyers can show him to ensure that this information is not going to be leaked publicly and potentially become witness interference. This is, again, the former president's own words potentially having consequences that could be damaging to him. It's right. And, you know, they and they've been slow on the discovery. They're being very clear about that, that we don't want to give this stuff up if this is going to be used recklessly. All eyes on this judge who he was warned when he was arraigned, as you well know, Reggie, that he could not do these things. He could not attempt to intimidate or interfere. And now there's going to be a reaction Will many are wondering? Let's. I'll use the president's, uh, former president's word. There, he used this a lot. Many say, many say that Donald Trump could be talking himself in to a detention. Perhaps incredible what we're watching here. It is, and look, the fact that the United States is at this point is nothing to be celebrating. This is not a moment to be um, jubilant in the fact that you have a former president facing an indictment, and now you have a former president who is facing the consequences for whatever they may say or whatever fear that the court system has that he may say about this uh, about this court. And, and look, the judge is going to obviously make a decision on this. Uh, you know, the judges that are in charge of this trial the, uh, is, is, is a judge who has had dealt with many times before uh, the, the, to deal with the consequences and the actions of those who partook in January 6th. This is this is a judge who is who is not going to play games here. But at the end of the day here, a judge is looking to ensure that these trials, that justice moves along at the appropriate way, in the appropriate style, at the appropriate pace. And if that means that the former president is going to be curtailed from what he can say publicly and out loud and to those around him, that is going to be uh, the judge's call to make, and it is going to be a difficult pill for the former president to swallow, and it is likely going to, in turn, incite more criticism of what so many Trump supporters, both on the political side and on the voter side, see as interference and weaponization of government and of the Justice Department. Because at the end of the day, regardless of what Trump may have or may not have done wrong, he and the people around him see him as a victim of an administration who is simply trying to knock him out of the race. So regardless of what happens here, Trump will play a victim card. And there are a solid number of people who will stand behind him and echo what it is he's saying, regardless of whether or not it's true. It is. We're watching extraordinary times. Now, he is feeling the heat now. The federal judge is demanding that he responds to this motion by the Department of Justice. And he's got till Monday at five, isn't it? And he's got to come up with an answer here. I mean, tough times for Donald Trump right now. That's an understatement. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, and look, the, the former president has to respond, or at least his team has to respond. And they have to, to, they're going to have to weigh all odds here. Is it worth the price of any potential consequence for Trump to be able to use his, his bully pulpit that he has uh, to be able to speak to the crowds? Uh, even though there may be a consequence, or does he use this to his political advantage? Does he say, look, I've now been silenced. This is the Justice Department. This is, you know, the Biden administration silencing me. And he uses that 
to to rally to his crowd like he did last night saying that, you know, three impeachments later, let's go for four because this will lock it up and I'll have the election. These are these are ways that that Trump is going to be able to to maximize on what is um, a, a, a situation that is further kind of digging him into a hole that is harder and harder to get out. But regardless of whatever this decision is, um, it is it's 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 almost unthinkable to think that the former president is not going to use this in some way to try and solicit either more money from donations, which he's already doing or fundraising, mm-hmm. or use this as a way to further gin up the base. We're we're heading, uh, Reggie, clearly into uncharted territory. You're covering it. How does it feel? I, it was history on the first indictment. There's a lot of stuff that's been history over the last six years. But now we're going into places we never dreamed of. We are. Uh, and, and look, it's, it's most reporters in history would, would never be able to cover an indictment of a former president because it never happened before. But here, no. you know, I'm now covering my, my third indictment of <laughs> of a president, not for stuff that happened after he was president or before he was president, but stuff that happened during his presidency and the potential for this to happen again with a fourth indictment down the road uh, in Georgia. This is, again, like I said earlier, this is not a moment in history for people to be celebrating. This is a moment for people to take pause uh, and, and for people to look around and say, maybe things need to be different here. You have talks within the Republican Party quietly of Trumpism may be here, but do we need Trump here? But when you look at the polling, when you look at the numbers and you see that Trump is just running away with support right now, leaps and bounds above people like Mike Pence and leaps and bounds above even second place Ron DeSantis, it, 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 it raises the question here, what is the Republican Party doing now? What will they do going forward? And what will they do if Trump becomes the nominee of this party as a three times, potentially four times indicted Republican candidate for president. This is a new this is a new world that not only Republicans are entering, but Americans as a whole and the world are entering. Jackson Prosco, Washington Bureau Chief for Global News on covering the indictment this week in Washington. Okay, Jackson, a historical moment has happened this week, and it's unraveling moment by moment again. Let me just ask you, you know, covering this and getting to this all-important indictment, this is is the one. I mean, being charged as a former president with attempting to overthrow an election is, is not something most of the world thought that we would see how how is it unfolding for you as a reporter? Let me ask you, first of all. You know, I think um, there's sort of been a sense that this has been a long time coming, right? People looked at the events of January 6, 2021. They looked at the lead up to that and all the things we saw with this president who was refusing to concede power. And I think there's sort of a sense of why has it taken so long to have some sort of accounting or reckoning for that? Because that was such an unprecedented moment and such an abuse of power, right? This idea that a president would not sort of uh, follow the well-established rules and procedures and, you know, groundwork of American democracy and cede power to someone else who had won the election. 
it's not something that we could imagine. And here we have these very surreal charges as you were covering it. You know, there was an expectation that perhaps the former president could do it again, watching for those who would show up. And as you pointed out in your coverage so correctly, it was a stone's throw from from where this had all happened before. But there were not there was not a huge crowd there supporting the president. No, it's kind of interesting. So I've been to all three of his indictments now, and uh, the biggest crowd was probably in Miami. Not surprisingly, Florida is Trump country. Uh, but there are regulars now who have made a point of going to all three of these. And these are both Trump supporters and Trump protesters. And there's a handful of them that have sort of made a road trip out of being at all three of these. Uh, Washington, though, is going to be a different beast of a trial for the former president because the city voted 95 percent in favor of Joe Biden. I think the city was largely traumatized by the events of January 6th. And so finding a sympathetic audience and a sympathetic jury in this town is going to be very difficult for Trump. And he sort of poured gasoline onto that fire as well by posting on social media uh, a whole bunch of sort of disparaging and derogatory things about the city on top of it all. Yeah, he is, you know, following it. And uh, you see, he's, he's calling for help. He's calling for help from the Supreme Court. Jackson, you're not just covering a trial. I mean, this is a huge test of so many things, isn't it? It's a test of the judicial system. As I, I read him saying, do something. The Supreme Court should interfere and come out and head to the streets. This is a test of democracy. This is a test of justice. This has a lot of other things on trial, not just a former president. It really does. And I think fundamentally, you know, the central allegation in the indictment is that Trump knew he had lost the election and yet he persisted with the lie. And he used that lie to try and persuade state level officials in seven different states. He tried to uh, persuade his own Justice Department to launch sham investigations. He tried to persuade his own vice president to interrupt the proceedings and overturn the election in his favor. And all of that speaks to, I think, a completely different view of presidential power than we've seen historically. Here's someone who makes no bones about the fact that the you know, mechanisms of government are there to serve him and him alone. And you've heard Trump's lawyers come out in recent days and say, yes, Trump was told he had lost the election. Yes, he accepted uh, that, or at least that information was conveyed to him. And now they're sort of trying to come up with some sort of defense around that. And, you know, maybe that is by claiming that he was receiving bad advice from what they're calling crackpot lawyers. But the point is, <laughs> here's a president who is willing to entertain that despite allegedly knowing better. And he is. And it's the names, isn't it? As we await who has flipped and who has not flipped is kind of a drinking game. <laughs> and and look at Mike Pence, clearly the vice president who frustrated so many people who knew he was there. And we saw I know what I saw with my own eyes. We saw nooses hanging. We heard hang Mike Pence. And yet he would not betray his former boss, it looks like he is now. It's pretty strong words coming up from Mike Pence. Clearly, he was waiting for those formal charges because the word fear is involved in this in so many ways. Yeah. And I think, you know, the sort of takeaway at the end of the day, despite the actions of individual players, is just this hold that Trump has over his supporters. The fact that uh, in the eyes of those who support him, he can do no wrong. They believe every word about the election being stolen. They believe that Mike Pence sold out Trump. Uh, they don't see it as Mike Pence defending the Constitution or the country. And so 
it is really remarkable the sort of position that it has put all these players in. Uh, and who would have thought that Trump's number two guy would have been sort of the person holding the line to defend yeah. democracy at the end of the day? It's so true, isn't it? Really is. And as you say, the individuals in the hold, and I use the word fear. So that's that's part of the the enigma here. What are they frightened of? And at what point will they frightened going to jail? I think that's the the question here. And when you look at how this indictment was handled down, handed down, there are um, six unnamed co-conspirators. We have a pretty good idea of who they are. It's likely to be people like Rudy Giuliani and Sidney Powell. But the reason for charging them separately and not lumping them in with Trump's indictment is this idea that it will not only speed along Trump's trial, but also that perhaps there is leverage there for the prosecutors, right? Perhaps they can convince one or more of the six to flip against Trump and then alter their charges, give them a more lenient sentence. And I think that's going to be the most fascinating part of this trial is finding out who's ready to flip and who has already flipped and what sort of testimony have people like Mark Meadows, the former White House yeah. chief of staff, provided uh, to counsel here. It's going to be fascinating to watch. It may be incredible testimony. You know, as we see all this pushback, we see the defense and you're seeing it, you're seeing the conservative media and those online and people who worked with him, but not everybody. You have former lawyers like Ty Cobb coming out. I, I'm, you know, I think he had a quote this weekend. He's toast. So he, he does have some detractors, those who have turned and even his former attorney general. Yeah, and I think that's kind of an interesting perspective. All this uh, is, you know, people like Bill Barr, people who uh, enabled Trump for a very long time. And yet this was the bridge that was too far. It is uh, it's going to be fascinating to watch. And I think it's a bit of a shame just from a public interest and public accountability perspective that the trial cannot be televised because it's in a federal court. Right. So we're left to rely on sketches Mm -hmm. and and court notes. But uh, this could move along very quickly and, and just be a fascinating sort of punctuation point in history. All right. You know, there may not have been crowds lining the street. Some of those who defended the Capitol that day showed up. I know you had an emotional interview with Daniel Hodges, who who was one of those defenders. Yes. uh, Daniel Hodges is the uh, uh, Washington, D.C. police officer who you've probably seen the footage of from January 6th. He was there in full riot gear being crushed in a door by Trump supporters. And he just lets out that that blood curdling scream Mm -hmm. in the video. And so I had a chance to speak to him about his thoughts on the indictments. And you're right, he was there in the in the courtroom to witness the arraignments. And, you know, I think the takeaway from him is that they are pleased, he and his fellow officers are pleased to sort of see this first step of accountability. They're really worried that if there is no accountability, that Trump or someone else in the future will learn from what happened on January 6th and the lead up to it and do it better next time and actually find a way to overturn the will of voters and cling to power. Or it could be Trump himself. He's laid it out, Jackson, very clearly. There is on top of that, that rallying cry for everybody to head to the polls and use democracy. There also is a blueprint that the former president has put out and it, it looks like a grab of power. So there's a lot to be concerned about here. There is. And, you know, this is where I think not all the indictment, not only the indictment against Trump, but the other ones that are trickling out in the states are so important and so fascinating. 
Uh, we saw, for example, in Michigan this week, uh, you know, uh, more indictments come out against people who had uh, obtained access to the voting machines. And I think yeah. a look at who had access to voting machines will be a big part of any indictments in Georgia as well coming out. And you realize that even if <clears throat> there's never any proof that Trump was coordinating directly with people working at the state level, you had independent actors who may have been motivated to do these incredible things like sign fake elector certificates, like try and bring in their own IT experts to figure out how to get access to voting machines. And it raises some serious questions about what may come in the future. Yeah, it does. It has a lot of ramifications. You know, as I cover this, and I'm sure you do too, I mean, you're the Canadian eyes and ears in Washington. And this is a Canadian story. It's a worldwide story, but they're our closest neighbors. They protect us. We're, we're in the middle of a, a conversation about whether we're doing our part. We know that Donald Trump, when he was president, threw that out as a gauntlet to Prime Minister Trudeau and others. And he may pull out of NATO. He said he would. He said he wanted to unless people pay up. And even then, who knows? But Jackson, if you're covering it and, and Canada is watching this, it's not just another country. It's a big thing. It is. I mean, we know that there is a, a global movement uh, towards authoritarianism. Uh, that's a, certainly a, a big factor here. But also, I think remarkably, there is an appetite for that type of governance by, uh, you know, a substantial portion of the American population. There's some polling out just this week that shows that in a hypothetical matchup between Donald Trump and Joe Biden, both men are tied right now. It's not a question of uh, if Donald Trump becomes president, it's how does he get there? I mean, he's very close right now. The Electoral College tends to skew in favor of Republicans, and it's very possible that uh, if he stands as a candidate, he will be president again. And you know, the thing that always jumps out at me, Arlene, is mm -hmm. politics aside, take the political labels off of all of it. Flashback to 2016, and there was so much concern about Hillary Clinton and this idea oh, yeah. of, well, you can't have a president or presidential candidate who might be under investigation. How far we've come now in 2023 that you hear somebody who's facing multiple indictments, the real possibility of conviction and jail time. And you've got half the country saying, yep, that's exactly who we want as president. I mean, that is just a remarkable indictment on where we are in politics today. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. I have to confess I love a poll because it gives us a snapshot and what is actually happening in the human beings of, of this country. And um, in a moment, we're going to get into how we feel about the military. There is new polling from Ipsos on how we connect with the military. What is our view of it? I think 56% says it's antiquated. Well, are we connected to it? What does this mean? We've just had national security and we're waiting for our inquiry. We've had some disturbing information. And then look at all the events in the United States of America. What about protecting ourselves? 
Why are we so nonchalant about it? And how does our opinion about it affect politicians? Daryl Bricker, Ipsos CEO, joining us live on this holiday weekend Saturday. Daryl, how are you? Great, Arlene. How are you doing? Okay, I'm good. You know, real a sense that things are about to come, certainly an action-packed fall ahead of us and on the road there. Daryl, you know, I can see why you did this polling, the military and our headlines. And once again, we're having to face just how woefully, perhaps unprepared we are. We have procurement problems. We have national security, election interference been in our headlines. And we have, as I mentioned, in, in America... We take them for granted in so many ways. They protect us. What are Canadians feeling about our military? What did you find? Well, uh, they, I think they have a, a good opinion of them historically, and they have a good opinion of the mission that they're trying to, to, to accomplish. Uh, the issue is that they don't feel that they're equipped to be able to do it, and they're concerned that they won't be able to deliver if they're asked. All right. Well, has that changed? I mean, you know, all the headlines that we've seen, and it's not the first time that we've had to come to grips with this. Are you noticing movement here from other polls? Yeah, we, we do see that over time, the, the level of confidence in the Canadian military's ability to deliver has declined. Uh, so, for example, in the face of things like, for example, the threat that Russia now represents um, in, in Europe, uh, the threat that uh, they see uh, the public perceives in China, uh, they, they do believe that the Canadian military needs to be able to be prepared to deal with that. But the, the feeling today is that uh, compared to maybe times past, like, you know, looking back to the Second World War, for example, that we're not nearly as prepared to participate in world events as an, as an active player uh, like we used to be. It is, and we used to be quite tough with ourselves, didn't we, Daryl, as Canadians, with our military? We were the peacekeepers, our Prime Minister Justin Trudeau reminding Canada of that and using all that kind of feelings we had and are in a positive way, uh, perhaps not tied into reality, as part of his rise to power here in Canada. Are, are Canadians feeling those things aren't true anymore? No, it's 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 less about the actual specific missions that the, that the military uh, is doing. In fact, Canadians are still quite proud of their military. It's more about the capabilities they, they that they have and their ability to deliver, and also how they're being managed, uh, including uh, the procurement of, uh, of of new equipment for for the Canadian military. Where Canadians, and at least in this poll, it's a strong majority telling us that there's too much political interference and mismanagement. So there's the sense that that that, that the, the military itself. Uh, is capable, um, the, the people that we've asked to be in the military are capable of doing the right things. It's just that the political system that's around them is not supporting them in the way that Canadians feel that they need to be supported. They do. You know, we've been, of course, uh, called upon to increase our military spending. And you could look that maybe Canadians haven't had it as a top priority. I see that you found a vast majority of Canadians say they would agree with defense spending increase. Yeah, we do find a vast majority. Seventy-five percent say that we should uh, we should increase our spending on defense. But it's interesting. We didn't do it in this poll, but we've done it in other polls where we put trade-offs in and say, okay, well, more for health care mm-hmm. or more for defense, mm-hmm. more for uh, child care, more for defense. Defense tends to lose every time. So the uh, Canadians feel like, yes, we need to be giving more to the military, but in the current context, there are other priorities that are that are more important. 
They are, and that that always happens. How much do you think what we're watching, you just referenced it, how much do you think what's happening in Ukraine with Russia is affecting this? Well, Ukraine, but also China. So we have large mm-hmm. percentages of people that we uh, that we surveyed on this uh, on this particular outing uh, on behalf of Global News uh, that said, you know, I feel more concerned as a result of what's going on in Ukraine. I feel more concerned as a result of, of what's going on in uh, in China these days and what's happening in the South China Sea. So Canadians are aware and are concerned about uh, what's going on, but it still seems pretty hypothetical to them. Uh, and Canada's role and engagement in, in either the conflict that's taking place or the potential conflict that happened in the Pacific, uh, we're, we're, not, we're not really there in terms of how our military would participate. All right. What about the demographic? Do we split up on, on age in our view of this? Oh, you hit the key point right there. I mean, it really does split by age. So if you look at how, how older, older Canadians are, are feeling, they're much more concerned about the status of the Canadian military. They tend to have a more positive historical view of, of the Canadian military, whereas younger Canadians, people, uh, those, those you know, young folks who can't get mortgages for houses, can't pay off their university debts, can't get their families started, uh, are, are really dealing with the cost of uh, uh, living issues every day in a very strong way, have another set of priorities and aren't as supportive of the Canadian military. All right. You know, is... Is are Canadians connected to what is happening in the military, or have the recent headlines affected this? Do you think? I mean, do we pay attention? I mean, in America, they do. At least they used to. Well, I don't think Canadians track it as, as much. I mean, uh, one of the things that's happened to the Canadian military, obviously, is all of the issues that have had to do with, uh, you know, sexual harassment and other problems have not mm-hmm. uh, uh, been very good for the Canadian military. But the, the big headline that's that's really come out over the last little while was the uh, the demand of our NATO partners to say that you know Canada should be stepping up and participating um, in terms of the level of funding that we give it to our military to the alliance uh, with the alliance. And uh, you know, I, th- I think that that's still out is something that's really made Canadians question as to whether or not we actually are spending enough on our military. All right. Finally, you know, we talked about you just uh, to your point about um, the feeling about China as we look at election interference and Canadians connection to what is happening in Ukraine. We're also on guard as we see the forays, may I say, by Russia into our Arctic. Are they paying attention? Are we as a country paying attention to that? Of all of the international issues that we could touch on, the one that uh, that seems to uh, bring it home for Canadians is anything to do with the Arctic. Really? They really do That's feel amazing. that that is a Canadian ocean. And they feel that we should be closely monitoring uh, uh, ships that are moving, uh, transportation, other activities that are happening in the Arctic. They even feel, a majority of Canadians feel, we should be building bases up there. So the Canadian North, even though very few of us ever visit there, is still from a, I would say, a... Uh, maybe even a symbolic point of view, really important to Canada's sense of sovereignty. So if there's an area where uh, the government could really get behind doing something with the military, the Canadians would strongly support. It is very much things to do with the North. All right. Very quickly, I'm sneaking one in. We're almost out of time. What surprised you here? What surprised me is uh, I think that uh, there still is this strong residual sense out there that the Canadian military has a mission that we need to really be behind it because we're not prepared to allow the United States to do all of our military activity. In fact, we asked Canadians, do you think we should just leave this up to the United States? 78% said no. 
So we do have a sense of our sovereignty that does involve the military, and that's something that governments really need to pay attention to. Taylor Swift is an example of so many things, and this segment is not about Taylor Swift's music. It is about the changing way we're going to concerts. Look at what's happened, the headlines, right in the, in the, with all the breaking news and the stuff that we're seeing happening in Canada and around the world. We have the Taylor Swift concert and the fact she is blessing Canada, coming to Toronto, headlines. And then we look at this new way of doing business in concerts. It takes me back to when I was a teenager and I would take the bus from Hamilton to the great big smoke of Toronto and go to concerts. It sure wasn't like this. It is a changing landscape. Alan Cross joining us, broadcaster with Q107, 102.1 The Edge, and a commentator for Global News and a wonderful music historian. Alan, how are you doing? I'm okay. All right. Taylor Swift, what does this say? You know, as I go back, I'm not the only person to look at the way the concerts have changed. This is just incredible. It is a massive business story, and it's going to change one of the biggest cultural experience we have had, like going to the theater and like the Greeks went and gathered. We go, we watch, they sing, they dance, but now we can't afford it. Well, yeah, concert tickets have become incredibly expensive since uh, the late 1990s. David Bowie actually predicted that this would happen when he saw the rise of the Internet. He realized that people would stop making money on selling pieces of plastic to the general public, and that revenue would have to be made up somehow. And it has been made up through the price of concert tickets. Now, to be honestly fair, concert tickets have been underpriced relative to other entertainment events. For a very, very, very long time. I mean, think about how much it costs to go to a Maple Leafs playoff game or how much it costs to get a ticket to a production like Hamilton. You know, concert tickets are, are a relative bargain considered uh, compared to those things because, again, you're getting a big production. You're in a very big venue. You're getting uh, something that lasts two or three hours or longer. Uh, why should it be priced any less than a theater production or, or a hockey game? So, um, and and... The idea of, of replacing revenue has really taken off. It used to be that, okay, well, all tickets are 50 bucks or whatever. But no, you can tier them so that the better seats, the VIP seats, are more than the nosebleed seats. And even the nosebleed seats are more than they've ever been. It's true. It's, it's true. You know, I'm glad that you uh, compared it to the Maple Leafs, but that gets criticized all the time. And it goes right down to one of the reasons I really wanted to talk about it. What a change, finally, is it the last bastion <laughs> to give in to this? Because it's uh, for those who can afford. And we know playoffs, it gets even more dynamic. And for a concert like Ta- Taylor Swift, same deal. Yeah, we have a, a, an interesting situation here. Um you have what the market will pay for a ticket versus the artist's need to maintain a relationship with fans who aren't particularly well-heeled. So this is why we have mm. a situation where, okay, tickets will go on sale for from, we'll say from, let's just say $69. That face value would be for a nosebleed seat, uh, but it would be before all the fees and, and service charges put on top of it. So it makes the artists look like they're actually trying to cater to the fans. 
But all you have to do is get on the Ticketmaster website and see that, well, okay, you're in the second last row in the second and last section. And then there's still service charges and, and taxes and everything on top of that. So what ends up happening is the Ticketmaster becomes the whipping boy for high ticket prices when it's really nothing to do with Ticketmaster. It has to do with the act. What people have to, what people have to understand is that the face value of a ticket is not ever set by Ticketmaster. It is set by the artist in conjunction with the agent and the promoter. And ultimately, the artist determines how much every single ticket in that building will cost. All right, you know, and you you just raised um, a really poignant point here: the need for the artist to connect with the fans and the ability to make money here. It was always huge, you know. You watch bands go out, and they were trying to. They had two missions. Yeah, they wanted to make money, and the and the tours were worth money even at the old prices. But they made that live connection. People got there; they never forgot it. Is that? Is that about to be kind of snipped a little bit with this new capitalism well, here? So far, if we look at what Live Nation says, they have sold more concert tickets and made more money so far this year than in almost any other year that they've been in existence. So people are willing to pay whatever it takes to go to these shows. The promoter will see that and go, oh, okay, so how much more can we nudge this price up? There was a time back, I think it was the late 80s or early 90s, when the Eagles announced a concert in Toronto. For the first time ever, face value for a ticket was over $100. And everybody was absolutely out of their minds. How could you be so greedy? Well, guess what happened? People paid. People paid, and, and the, solar, the shows were sold out. And that's the way it's been. How high can we push the price of the ticket? Now, again, we have to determine... We have to make the distinction between the ticket that you're going to buy from Ticketmaster and any ticket that you buy in the secondary market, which has a huge, huge premium attached to it. I've seen Taylor Swift tickets uh, go on sale for, for Toronto, which, by the way, don't exist. These tickets do not exist yet. But if you go on StubHub or some of these other secondary sellers, they're selling tickets in the 100 section for over $13,000. <laughs> which is, this is called a speculative ticket. They believe uh, who are selling the people that are selling these tickets do not have these tickets in hand yet, but they have a, a very, very high confidence that they will be able to get that ticket or something very similar once they become available. So if you are buying tickets, just be aware that you're buying something that doesn't quite exist yet. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. 